Discover raw, inspiring stories from runners who've been right where you are. This is the Choose to Endure Ultra Running Podcast with your host, he's English, not Australian, Richard Gleave. Hello again, ultra runner friends. This is the Choose to Endure podcast dedicated to you, the back of the pack ultra runners who are redefining possible one epic journey at a time. Today, I am super pleased to be joined by someone who's a veteran of multiple 50K and 50-mile races with many successes, including two Moab 240 finishes, which I think is absolutely incredible. Uh, He's also experienced a fair few DNFs along the way over the past uh, seven years or so, and has recently been featured in a How It All Started Run Try Mag article. He is with us today to talk about his most recent Moab conquest this past October. So a huge welcome and thank you very much for joining the uber cool Mr. Casey Sanders. Casey, how's it going, man? I think I think the last time our paths crossed might have been early hours of the morning and a few thousand feet up a mountain. So this feels a whole lot more reasonable for sure. <laughs> on a nice afternoon yeah. here. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. Um, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I, I think the last time we, we crossed paths, we were at like 10,000 feet of elevation uh, <laughs> in the Abayo Mountains outside of Moab. So um, Yeah, it was pretty chilly up there, I think, uh, from what I recall. To kick us off, for folks who maybe haven't read the Run Try Mag article, uh, maybe you can start us with a little bit about your background in ultra running and what initially sort of drew you to the sport. Yeah, uh, you know, I've I've never really been very athletic. I think the Run Try Bike Magazine article uh, is titled From Last Picked in Gym Class to Ultra Runner, which is a pretty accurate portrayal. Um, definitely was not athletic growing up, um, was actually last picked in gym class in like junior high and high school. Um, oh. Tough spot to be. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I, I got older. I had kids, started a family, and, uh, you know, had gained a pretty healthy, unhealthy amount of weight. Um, I think I was <laughs> probably pushing up against 300 pounds. Um, and then I, I had a neighbor who had a road bike, and he was like, you should take it for a spin. And uh, – all of my cycling experience had been on, you know, Walmart, Huffy bikes and whatever. And, and this guy was super into road biking. So his bike was probably worth more than my car at the time. And I took it for a spin around the block and was like, wow, I can actually go fast on a bike and it feels good. So, (laughs) so I I went out and got a road bike and, you know, like an entry level, uh, all aluminum road bike and started riding. And, I kind of got hooked on the the cardio stuff and just started riding. You know, I was riding like four or five miles yeah. a day. And then I started riding like a hundred miles a week and was like, Oh my God, I'm losing weight. Oh, this man. is great. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. And then I live here in Utah and it's really cold in the winter. So winter rolled around and I put my bike on a trainer and started <laughs> riding on Swift and ah. just, yeah, I just spent, you know, hours a day just grinding out miles on a video yeah. game, basically, and lost a bunch of weight. Um, I was kind of on the verge of a divorce at the time, and I had told my ex-wife that I was going to uh, run a marathon. And she was like, right, you hate running. 
and, <laughs> and I did. And I was like, yeah, but it seems like a good challenge. And so, um, you know, things kind of fell apart with my, my marriage at that point. And I didn't run a marathon. It didn't happen. Didn't really mm. follow through with it and kind of was kicking myself about that. And then I found a 50K race out in Moab that I was like, I'm going to run this. And so I, I signed up for the Arches Ultra and drove down to Moab and got the flu the night before. Had a fever, oh. was just dying. And I was like, oh, oh man, I drove all the way, drove all the way to Moab. I'm going to do this thing. And so my first marathon was actually the Arches Ultra 50K. But it was great. I, I finished it. There were some challenges, obviously, you know, being sick and all that stuff. But I finished it, and I kind of got hooked on it. And uh, the bike started collecting dust and started buying new running shoes too frequently after that. So, yeah, that's yeah. kind of how I fell into this pit of ultra running that I can't get out of now. <laughs> it really it really is a pit too it, it once you're in it's it sort of starts dragging you down and you, and you start thinking oh I, I can do that like oh maybe i can do a little bit a little bit more or maybe there's another challenge and then you before you know it you're way down in there oh, so oh, yes yeah. i definitely uh definitely feeling that one so why why the 50k in moab i think moab i don't know my geography is not great but that's a that's a few hours from salt lake right so what what was it about that about that 50k I think it was just because uh, the marathon idea I had in my head hadn't worked out and I I really just wanted to try and do a marathon or try and do a 50K, something of the marathon distance or a little more. And being yeah. winter in Utah, there wasn't many options. And I was like, all right, what's the next nearest right. thing I can do? And so it really was just timing. Moab's a little, a little bit warmer in the winter uh, than Salt Lake City. And, you know, three and a half hours, not too long of a trek. Um, so I'm very fortunate to be close to that that area. The other nice thing about Moab, and I almost don't want to say this because I don't know how many people are going to listen, but um, <laughs> the, the best time to go is in the winter because it's not really? packed with tourists. It's cold and inhospitable to many, but still, um, you know, it's not like... It's not like you can't go out on the trails in the winter in Moab. And so if if you want to go to Moab when there isn't, you know, Jeeps driving down the trails you're hiking on and there's not just tourists everywhere and a huge traffic jam on Main Street and the hotels are expensive, go in like February and you'll have the place to yourself and you can get a motel for 50 bucks a night. So <laughs> for sure. And I can attest to the, to the challenges of driving around Moab and at a busy time, you know, having been part of a crew out there, we, we took a wrong turn getting up to the geyser pass aid station. We went right up the back way. So we went all the way through all the Jeeps and all the up oh, the Jeep yeah. trails. Uh, so yeah, we got a firsthand look at all of the, I mean, there are just conga lines of Jeeps out there, uh, you know, hitting, hitting those trails. So, kind of fun um so that that was your intro to to ultra running fast forward a good many years and here you are finishing up your second moab 240 race which i as i said i think that's incredible so you know right out of the gate as as far as sort of training or race preparation for your second go at moab did that how did that differ from the first and and were there any specific areas maybe that you focused on going into the second race with knowledge of what what transpired during the first one yeah um well i'll give you some background on the first one um 
I tend to be a little bit delusional about what I'm capable of. And I think that that's maybe you have to be a little bit delusional to, <laughs> well, to do a 240 mile yeah, race. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, so I had never run a hundred mile race and I saw, you know, an Instagram post about Moab 240, um, right after I'd started running, uh, ultra marathons and really, you know, started taking running kind of seriously. And I was like, Oh my God, this is a thing that exists. I had no idea. And so I, I, you know, just went out and registered for the triple crown of two hundreds without really researching it and was like, I'll figure this out. And, Oh, you just went uh, all in. I did. And I've been figuring it out since, to be honest. Um, I have DNF'd, uh, Bigfoot twice. So in 2019, when I did the Moab 240, I, I DNF'd Bigfoot first, didn't start Tahoe. And then to be honest, uh, you know, doing that, like, I, I think I did 93 miles or something at Bigfoot. And then, you know, a month and a half, two months later did Moab. And I think that that big, you know, effort set me up for it pretty well. Mm. Um, then this year I, I DNF'd the Bigfoot 200 again. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> you yeah. know, I got like 75 miles in and that 75 mile run was a, a really good long run to have before the Moab 240. Um, lovely warm up that you had yeah, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um and you know, and I think all of my other training wasn't too crazy. You know, I I really don't try to do too much volume. I think my my high highest volume weeks are somewhere around seventy miles. Um mm. and you know, I, I generally aim for forty miles a week just all the time. I I sort of try to keep a philosophy that I should be capable of running a 50k at any time and i like it yeah yeah and i i feel like running 40 miles a week keeps me there yeah i have a i have a toddler right now so it's a lot more challenging to get out on on the trails as much as i'd like so i would say much of my training going into the moab 240 this year was uh pushing a stroller with an unwieldy toddler from playground to <laughs> playground on like our paved neighborhood trails and stopping at playgrounds for a half hour and then going like, let's move on to the next playground. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's absolutely awesome uh, in a fantastic way that you can go and do training like that and, and still turn around and go finish a race like Moab 240. I mean, I think that just, <laughs> that gives me and, and anybody else listening a whole lot of like, Oh wow. Yeah. You know, I don't have to go and spend, 12 hours running a trail every Sunday in order to finish something like that. You know, you, you can do it different yeah. ways for sure. Um, yeah, I think you can absolutely do it on marathon training. If you can train for a marathon, you can, you can run the Moab 240, you know? Um, yeah. I think part of that though, is that you have to be mentally prepared for the pain and suffering that come with, uh, the, <laughs> the distance. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's not it, all. I it's mean, one I, of those things you can do a whole lot of physical training, right? But there's not many plans out there that touch on the mental side of stuff, and I think that's where certainly myself and and others, uh, maybe yourself too, you kind of have to figure that stuff out as you go because it's it's a it's a roller coaster out there, it, and nobody really. When I started doing these things, nobody prepped me for that there was a lot of physical training stuff out there like you need to run this much you need to you know do this many hours a week or whatever it was but uh, very little about the emotional roller coaster that is one of these events and so you know, you start getting into these and and 
you know, it's it's a wild ride out there. So yeah, it, um, it really is. And and a lot of that is that you can't train for it. I mean, I think a lot of very successful ultra runners have had trauma in their lives, maybe that has trained them for it um, inadvertently. Yeah. Um, but but really, nothing will train you for you know. People talk about the pain cave and stuff like that, but the only way to train for it is to go out and experience it and Just see if that's it. something you want to <laughs> muscle through. You know, <laughs> for sure. And I think that's that to me is one of the big benefits of doing these things too, because. You know, it is uncomfortable and, and it's amazing how different people react when you put yourself in those situations. And I've, I've run some long races, uh, maybe not 240, but you can, you can look around at a lot of these races and just look at people and, and know whether they have a pretty good chance of getting to the end by their attitude, you know, when they're 80, 100 miles in. Are you, are you <laughs> smiling? Are you, are you cracking a joke with somebody or, or are you doing the death march already and just you know yeah. just trudging it out uh so yeah i i do I, I think the emotional thing is 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 definitely something to work on as, as part of doing these so did you you know knowing that there was a lot of climbing did you did you do any for the second go around did you focus more on sort of strength or any climbing specific training or did you just kind of stick to the playground and the, and the paths uh, you know, I stick to the playground and pass most of the time uh, when I do get the chance to have kind of a long weekend run. I'm very fortunate where I live. There's some trails that are like a mile from my house. So I, I just run out of my house and, and you know, head up to the trails and I can get, you know, a couple thousand feet on 10 miles or so. So I, I wow. definitely do try to get more vertical training in. If I lived in a place like Kansas, I would probably be suffering and have to have like an incline trainer in my garage <laughs> or something. Um, it it certainly helps to have some some climbing on your on your legs before you go into something like this. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm I'm not huge on strength training. I I do try to do body weight exercises. You know, I'll do like push ups and crunches and planking and stuff like that. But uh, yeah. I'm not huge on it. I don't go to the gym. I, you know, I, I find that if I have a barrier to entry for anything, it, it definitely messes me up. If I had to drive yeah. to the gym or drive yeah, to the like trailhead. a 10 minute drive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 20 minute. It adds up over time. And you're just like, I just want to do something at home. Like, is there something I can do in my house for 10 minutes? You know, some plyometrics or something. Right. Yeah. Plyometrics or some kind of, you know, body weight exercises in my office while I'm on a break from work or something. Yeah, um, pick up the toddler, you know, bench press the toddler. Definitely, uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. All right, so you've got your training, you did, uh, you know, you've worked through pre-race prep. So I'm excited to hear about your race because having been out there crewing, we we got to see you at certain stages along the way, but yeah. I am I'm really excited to hear from your perspective how your race went. Start to when we saw you crossing the finish line there, because I think there's probably an awful lot to unpack doing that. And you yeah. know, it's been a few weeks and sometimes it takes a little while to, to get through emotionally a race like this. Um, oh, so I was, yeah, yeah. Like walk us through your race. What was it? So you're standing at the start line, you're ready to go. Are you nervous the second time? Are you kind of calm? Cause you've been there and done it. Where are you at well, at, at the start line? Uh, I'll start a little before the start line. Cause I think maybe a month and a half, before the race, I was out, um, doing the Bigfoot race and going into that race, I was 
anxious, overwhelmed with anxiety, just kind of a mess going into it. Um, mm. You know, I, I overthought everything because I think I had DNF that race before. I think I was even more nervous. Uh, and, and then I did DNF the race again, you know, and I, I drove home from Washington and you sit there and start watching these Instagram posts of people that are out there doing the race that you just DNF'd and they're still in it. And you're like, man, mm. maybe I shouldn't have DNF'd it. Maybe I could still yeah. be out there. I don't know if you know who Sally McRae is. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I follow her on Instagram and I saw this video of her just like suffering the last 10 miles into the aid station or to the finish line of Bigfoot. And she was like, I'm going to finish what I started. I'm going to follow through. She said, and I was like, Oh man, it hit me right in the feels. And I was like, okay, oh. Mohab's coming up. I need to finish what I start. And so I set that, you know, as one of my priorities going into Moab was like, don't overthink it. Don't let yourself build this thing up to be something that's impossible ahead of time. You know, like, you know, you can do this. You've done it before, but there's a lot of self-doubt like, okay, I did it before in 2019. That was like what, five years ago or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I've since then gotten married. I've had a, a baby. Maybe my training isn't as good as it was before because now I have a baby, you know, and I had all these doubts, but I was like, no, I can do this and I'm going to finish what I start. And so, you know, I didn't have a crew or pacers. I went down there alone and just tried not to overthink it. Um, spending a night alone in a hotel before the race is dangerous for me because that's putting me in a perfect position to just overthink things and get anxious and start freaking out. But I didn't, didn't get too anxious about it. And, and just thought like, okay, follow through. That is what we're going to learn here on this, this trip is follow through and just keep moving forward. And, you know, there was a, a noon start time this year, which was new. Yeah, that's different, right? Yeah, that's a change. Yeah. I thought this is going to be amazing. I, I'll sleep in. I'll be starting the the race <laughs> well rested. And yeah, at five a.m. on race day, I was up and wired. Oh. So, so I did not sleep in. Went into it tired, but that's okay. And uh, I was grateful for the noon start time going through Lockhart Basin because that is just so exposed and you know you get sunburnt and fried to a crisp out there and then you can't really dnf the race in that section anyway so it's pretty difficult until i think mile 70 to drop from the uh the moab race because it's so remote yeah inaccessible Um, yeah. yeah which which is a real blessing because um i think most people tend to kind of hit a wall around mile 60 or 70 and, mm. you know, a little bit of despair might start setting in, things start hurting, you know, it, it, people talk about marathon running, how you tend to bonk or hit a wall at like mile 20 or 22. I think in the uh, ultra marathon world, at least my personal experience is like mile 60 or 70, that's when the wheels start to come off. Sometimes you need to, you know, determine if you can patch it up and make it work or not, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so I'd say the first day of the race, though, it went great. I ran into your friend Agatha um, pretty early into the race, and we we spent, I'd say, the first day together and the first night. I think, uh, yeah, I was feeling good, and I think attitude, I I tried to stay positive, and I I deal with pain by making jokes and saying stupid, goofy stuff a lot, and that helps a lot. So, yeah. I think that first night, was, was that quite a chilly night? 
or was that the second night? One of them was really pretty pretty chilly. Were you prepped for that going in? Do you you're familiar with that? Yeah, I'm pretty used to the cold and I don't mind it so much. Uh, you know, it was weird though, because uh, as you're going through these little valleys or whatever, just, you know, you'll get like a wave of warm air and then a wave of very cold air. So it was sort of uncomfortable, I would say. But the first night wasn't wasn't necessarily the worst. I think the second night was a lot colder. Um, mm. You know, the the third night I went into that expecting it to be very cold and just layered up and had all this stuff on and it wasn't as cold as I expected. So, um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'd, I'd say, I'd say the biggest challenge I had though was uh, sleep or the lack thereof. Had you, had you planned, you know, had you put together a, a pre-race plan for, okay, I'm going to sleep at Indian Creek and then I'm going to sleep at, you know, where, wherever Shea or something, did it work out yeah. or were you just kind of all, like, as in when I get it, it, it I'm taking it during the race? Well, I kind of had a rough plan going into it. I knew I was going to try to sleep for like an hour or two at Indian Creek and then, you know, sort of wing it from there. Mm. Um, unfortunately, Indian Creek, I tried to sleep at the aid station. Um, I think I frustrated Agatha because she wanted to leave and I was like, yeah, I'm getting up. Um, <laughs> but the, the problem with me and sleeping at an aid station is I, I tend to just lay there wanting to sleep, but then, you know, a runner comes in and they're ringing cowbells and people are talking. And so it's, I, I spent a lot more time trying to sleep than actually sleeping, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I didn't get enough sleep. Uh, at Indian Creek and I just figured out like, all right, I'll have to wing it from here. And I sort of did. I'd say the best sleep I got throughout the race was just climbing into my Mylar bivy on the side of the trail and setting an alarm for five or 10 minutes. And just those little five or 10 minute power naps make a world of difference. I think after I ran into you in the, um, headed to Monticello Lake or something, Yes, I, I curled probably, up on yeah. the ground and yeah, I took a, a nap and I think you guys passed me at that point. But yeah, I had a few real good, you know, five, five or 10 minute naps that really are what I was living on for the whole race. So, um, yeah, that's a lot to be said for a, for a dirt nap too. Those, those sort of 10 minute, get your head down and actually get some sleep because I, I funnily, funnily enough, it's easier to sleep out on a quiet trail somewhere than it is as you as you say at a lively aid station with music going and lights and whatever people coming in people leaving i mean it's all over the place so unless you've got an actual because i saw a lot of those what do you call them like the motorhome rv type type thing and people were jumping yeah. in those and i was like man that should, that that looks to be awesome next time i'm doing a race like this i would look into that but unless you have something like a car or one of those uh, yeah i guess i can see how it would be difficult to, to sleep at an aid station for sure Oh, absolutely. So the first time I did the Moab race, I, I had my uh, wife crewing for me and uh, oh, cool. she had my car. And so when I would get to an aid station where I was planning to sleep, you know, she had a bed made up in the back. I just crawled in there and got really good sleep. But, you know, if you go into a tent with a, a cot or an air mattress and there's like other runners coming and going from the tent, rummaging through their bags and, you know, the cowbells going and people cheering when runners come in. It's just, yeah, I'd, I'd say that sleeping on the side of the trail is drastically better than trying to sleep at an aid station unless you have a support vehicle. How did you find yeah. your bivy bag? Did it work for you? Because uh, I've always, like, 
I always, I don't know. It, I like the idea of the trail naps, but getting that thing out and you know getting in it and then trying to put the damn thing away again and I just, I'm like, I don't, <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it. So I don't know what your take on bivy bag napping is. This is the first time I actually tried the bivy bag napping, and I had those same concerns. I was like, well, I'm never ever going to get this thing rolled back up into the you know tight little package it came in. But I will say they're shockingly warm. Um, really? Yeah. You know, for being a Mylar space blanket, I, I mean, you look like a, you get in that thing and you feel like a, a Chipotle burrito, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. especially when you know there's mountain lions and bears out there. <laughs> You're like, let me just make myself a burrito. Cool. But they're really quite warm. You get in it, super warm, zero padding, of course. So. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you take your power nap on a pebble, that pebble will be there reminding you that you didn't find a suitable spot the entire time. Um, <laughs> the one uh, big drawback to them is that they don't breathe. So, you know, you, you climb into this plastic metal bag covered in sweat and then perspire during your power nap. And as soon as you get out, you're just way colder. Um, so you, you got to plan on getting out of that bivy sack and moving to, to warm back up because they're, they're pretty toasty inside. It's surprising how yeah. warm they are. Yeah. I, I, and you know, I've, I've, the naps I've done have been without the bivy bag. Cause I just, I'm like, I'm not dealing with that issue. So it's good to know that they actually perform as, as, as stated. And yeah. I will tell you, I will tell you, uh, Glenn and I, so Agatha was really keen to get her bag rolled up and stuffed back in there. So it, uh, twice Glenn <laughs> and I did that as crew and we were, we got that, we got it down, man, the pair, but it took two of us to like hold it and twist it and turn it. You and actually it. were able to get it twice. We, the... Yeah, twice. That's but impressive. I would not advise doing that as a, as a solo runner because you'd be spending an hour doing that. <laughs> so I totally no. get it as just stuff that thing in man and go. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. My strategy is like roll it up into a big, poofy ball and strap it onto the back of your pack and that's hope it. it survives you know there you go we're, we're doing live tips here uh on the podcast for <laughs> how to run with how to use your bivy bag uh, in the real world yeah. not not like um, the advert when you buy it yeah um you know if speaking of gear i tried something new this time that i had never done um i trained with it a little bit on the advice of uh there's kind of a a veteran 200 mile runner named uh, Phil Clark and you know there's a Facebook group for the thing and he'd he'd mentioned using a hip belt along with uh, your running vest and I use a ultra spire gear primarily and I have a ultra spire yeah. zygos pack yeah and an ultra spire speed goat oh running the belt. Dub- is that with the double holster yeah yeah it's got two water bottle holders and uh it really is a great place to stow your trekking poles too in the front of it so um i thought this is going to be overkill but uh it really was great because i sort of hate having the the water bladder um i used it just for the the real dry sections of the race and then ditched it but um but yeah the the vest with the running belt was a really great setup um, I like the 
Did you have the bottles in the belt or were you using the bottle pouches to stuff, I don't know, food or whatever else? No, I, I had two water bottles in the belt and then, gotcha. uh, you know, two water bottles in my vest. So yeah, yeah. four water bottles, which um, might be overkill for some people. But uh, on the Moab race, there's really not a lot of opportunities to filter water. So um, mm-hmm. you really have to carry a fair amount through some of those sections and uh, what I I think the real benefit of that was is that you have some of the weight on your hips, not on your shoulders the whole time. My shoulders get sore. I try to train with my vest, but most of my training is pushing a stroller, you know. So, so <laughs> yeah. wearing a – you get all the mandatory gear into a vest, and it gets pretty hefty. So, um, yeah, for sure. You know, just putting some of that weight on my hips was, was a huge improvement, so – I'd recommend going with the uh, the the vest and the water belt. Nice combo there. I think that's a great yeah. that's a great recommendation. And, and the other thing I can see there, I don't know whether whether you tried this or or no, but when you've got four individual bottles, you can mix and match what you're bringing with you, right? You could have a mix in one and three waters, or however you want to do it. So I think from that perspective, that could be super useful too. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, because I, I like to have, you know, like liquid IV or, or tailwind or something in some of my mm-hmm. bottles. And sometimes, uh, you know, if you're feeling a little sick, you might just want more water, or more electrolytes or, you know, one thing the Destination Trail races have started doing that I love is they have like juice at the aid stations. And, you know, normally I get to an aid station and I'm like, give me some Coca-Cola or give me you know, oh, yeah. ginger ale. And but juice is pretty awesome to have it's it's great to have some apple juice or something so um yeah it was nice to be able to mix it up and have a little variety now talking aid stations i know when when we hit the aid stations there was a variety of stuff there are you somebody who you go all in for whatever you've got at the aid station if it's a burger or a cheese quesadilla or whatever it is do you go for that stuff or are you like no i'm i'm on morton or tailwind or whatever you know or and did it change during the race like did you ever kind of get sick of what you were doing and just go yeah yeah uh you know i i tend to stick with uh like bacon and cheese quesadillas or like breakfast burrito type things every aid station was like oh do you want a cheeseburger oh do you want a cheeseburger and it terrified me the idea of eating a cheeseburger um (laughs) it just seemed too too heavy too much a lot of you risk. just you just never know in that in those i mean i've done that before and paid for it you know two miles yeah. later uh for sure yeah one time i ate a hot dog at a race and was like oh my god what oh. have i done um <laughs> and then other times i've eaten a hot dog at, a, at an aid station and been like that was manna from heaven so <laughs> you know and uh i'd say this time around i stuck to what i knew would be safe which is like bacon and cheese quesadillas with guacamole mm. and that's kind of a go-to of mine but as the race wore on later in the race, day you know three and four, I, I started accepting the cheeseburgers and was glad I did. <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, nighttime I was uh, hitting the hot drinks pretty hard, like instant mm. coffee with hot cocoa in it, or like the hot apple cider, or like broth with a little bit of instant mashed potatoes mixed in to make it creamy. Mm. When I'm cold, I like the hot drinks, but during the day, I, I started. I started moving into the cheeseburger territory and it was it was well worth it so <laughs> yes it's it's i don't know it's dangerous for me that but there are some distinct payoffs i mean when you get one or maybe two of those that's also something you can eat on the move so it's pretty easy to eat while yeah. you're going so you can grab one and leave you know uh, uh, down the trail but 
slightly dicey territory for me there. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. And, you know, food on the go is great. I, I tend to have them pack me uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, you know, to just stick in my pocket or something. And uh, that's great to have. I I don't really like the gels and I get sort of burned out on the candy eventually. But gummy bears, I like gummy bears. I, I probably ate like 50 packs of gummy bears, little individual <laughs> Costco packets. So, Dude, I am really picky when it comes to gummy bears, though. They've got to be the gold Haribo gummy bears. I can't I can't oh, do any yeah. of the, the sort of knockoff gummy bears. Just don't work for me. And then when they get really cold, it's a total sidebar for gummy bears, cause, but I really do like them. <laughs> and ultra racing has, has got me into gummy bears. But yeah, if you... If they're cold, they're really challenging to chew. So, like, mm-hmm. if you get them at night and it's a cold night, I'm not sure I really want these because you got to chew on yeah, these things. Yeah, it takes a lot more work. Yeah, and... your jaw gets sore chewing on these dang gummy bears. But yeah, I'm a I'm a fan of gummy bears, but it's got to be Haribo for me. I I, I think Haribo is definitely my preferred uh, brand of gummy. Um, but you know, I'll take what I can get. I'm not too. <laughs> total sidebar Uh, yeah (laughs) Yeah. no that's if you want to talk about a weird sidebar uh, i was running with a a woman amber a good portion of the race i'd say yes um, yeah i remember amber yeah yeah Yeah, once uh you know i ran probably the first uh portion of it with with agatha and once uh, glenn showed up her husband they kind of took off and there was no no chance i was going to keep up with them she was moving along at a really good click uh clip and and Glenn, you know, he's fast too. So yeah. they were kind of goners. And uh, I started hanging out with Amber and she had some kind of like airhead chews or something like that. And she offered me one and I ate it and it was the best candy I think I've ever had. The moment was right or something. And I was like, oh, oh my God, airhead chews from Costco. I need to find these for my next race because hit the spot. <laughs> wow um, so they were yeah. like the che- like chewy candy i guess if they yeah, were it was chews, like a right? chewy candy but uh, i don't know they were they were super good but you know uh-huh. when you're in a in a race certain things taste amazing and then you go mm. home and try one and you're like that's no nope. what what, what on earth was i thinking sure. yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah for yeah. sure yeah so while we're on the gear and equipment topic was there aside from the ultra spire waste pack in addition to your regular Ultra Spire pack, was there any other gear that you took this time that you didn't last time or upgraded that made a significant difference, good or bad, I suppose, uh, uh, you throughout know, your race? I, I pretty much tried to stick with things I know. I really like Ultra shoes. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about their quality and durability going downhill. Mm. But, you know, I, I went into this race with a brand new pair of ultra lone peaks that i had never worn before um which is a little risky a little Um, yeah yeah but they were great and they held up really well had you trained in lone lone peaks or i mean were you familiar with lone peaks beforehand so you i'd say i did most of my my trail runs in lone peak sixes and then i went and bought a pair of lone peak sevens right before this and was like tried them on and was like well they seem to fit about the same i'll just take these <laughs> um, <laughs> so, good man live dangerously i like it uh, just yeah, go for it so, go for it so a new model of lone peaks i tried on the race and they worked out great as far as other gear that i absolutely don't think i could do one of these without is the uh, lecky poles with the shark mm. grip gloves yep, um, yep have you ever used those 
I haven't. No, I've uh, mine are the black diamond, the graphite okay. ones. But I see plenty of people using the the lucky poles, you know, with the with the with the gloves. Yeah, yeah, the gloves are they're amazing because you know you just keep the gloves on and they have a little a little button you click on the top that detaches the glove from the pole. So they're sort of like quick release gloves that are just attached to your hands. And uh, you know, I use those black diamond Z poles sometimes, and they're pretty good, but. Uh, I, I feel like the glove makes all the difference. So the, the lucky shark, shark grip, I think they're called, I don't know. The lucky poles yeah. with the detachable gloves are amazing. I mean, they really are a game changer for me. So, and did you use those fan. throughout or were, were you like, Hey, I'm not going to use poles until I start climbing out of Indian Creek or I get up to Shea or I'm not going to, I'm or are you just, I'm just going to use them if I need, if I feel like I need them, I'm, I'm going to use them. Uh, I, I use them if I feel like I need them pretty much most of the race. Uh, they're annoying to me on, on slick rock. So, mm. you know, if you're on the slick rock, they don't really do much for you there because they're just clanking against the ground. But um, I'd say the the vast majority of the race I use them. Um, if I'm on some tricky stuff that I want to use my hands to keep from falling, I'll, I'll yeah. sell them. But yeah, I mean, I'm definitely back of the pack much. I mean, I, I think I finished with 15 minutes to spare. So <laughs> it was epic. <laughs> I have to tell you, <laughs> we were, love those we were pushing it real close. Yeah. Um, didn't get, uh, you know dfl but we saw him behind us and had to run to keep him from passing us so uh oh a bit of encouragement towards the end there yeah so i think uh, on our on our trip through your 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 moab experience i think we got halfway so were there any kind of in between there and your 15 minutes to spare where was your head like were you up were you down like did you always feel like yeah i fairly got this in the bag or was there a particular aid station where you were like i need to get here otherwise i'm not sure I mean, we were up at uh, Geyser Pass, and we saw a lot of people, you know, get uh, timed out at at that particular aid station, including Agatha. But there was some really emotional crew and supporters up at that particular aid station, for instance. So, was there any point yeah. along the way where you kind of felt like, oh, I'm behind schedule here, I, I really need to get booking it, or were you pretty comfortable cruising at a solid speed throughout? Uh, you know, I would say I was pretty comfortable and confident that I would finish the race until um, five or six miles out from Geyser Pass. Uh, mm. There's a lot of climbing to get to Geyser Pass. I think we were all pretty sleep deprived. I was with uh, Amber and a uh, guy, Doug, at that point, And we were sort of in this like, oh, only three miles to the aid station, only three miles to the aid station for like six or seven, eight miles, maybe more. <laughs> um, I think uh, we got off trail for about a mile, lost the trail as oh. we were off, found our yeah. way back. But yeah, it just sort of felt like I was never going to get to Geyser Pass. And then I started looking at the time and where I was and was like, oh, there's a very real possibility that I'm going to get cut for time at Geyser Pass. Now, uh, you know, Debbie, she was crewing with you guys for Agatha. She, oh, yes was a freaking lifesaver uh, as i was coming into geyser pass there was debbie on the trail and she was like you gotta pick up the pace buddy and <laughs> that sounds exactly like what you would have said too yeah. yeah she really got me motivated she got me in and out of that aid station so quick i got in there and she was like all right you don't have time for jack 
let's take everything out of your your pack that's unnecessary lighten the load she was like uh, a formula one pit crew so she was literally just a blessing to have there and i was glad that i knew her at that point because i don't know if i would have made it out of that aid station as quickly as i did but yeah she got me just fixed up made sure i had my mandatory gear and nothing else basically um had what i needed got me a, a huge cheeseburger well done with guacamole and all the stuff and just booted me out of the aid station before i got timed out and you know i <laughs> i remember very painfully walking out of that aid station with a cheeseburger in my hand and just going <laughs> to the nearest patch of shade i could find and sitting down and being like oh my god okay we don't have much time here we're yeah we got to figure this out and got to keep moving or i'm not going to finish the race and so it, it got a little sketchy from that point on the geyser pass aid station is at the bottom of this long gravel road and it's just uphill from there you just got to trek up this long kind of arduous gravel road for a while and uh amber and i uh were stuck together there and just started you know making it up the road and we ran into doug who had a pacer and uh i'd say amber's uh forethought to be like we got to see if doug will let us go with them and hang out with this pacer because we're not thinking clearly and we're not going to finish this unless we can keep a certain pace we need someone that can tell us what that pace is because our math is sleep crazy <laughs> yeah. person math yeah, yeah <laughs> you know like, sure. like her and i were talking and we're like okay well we have to keep this pace well no we have and you know we were trying to reason out like how fast we had to keep moving if we could stop for a five minute nap, what we had to do to finish the race. And we were clearly not making sense to each other. So I'm very grateful that she was like, let's catch up to Doug and ask if we can hang with him and his pacer. And we did. Um, I met this guy, Dustin, who was, he had run the first, oh, I don't know, 60 or 70 miles of the race or something and DNF'd because he wasn't, you know, some people are like, some people are like, if I'm not running the race I expect of myself, I'll drop, you know, yeah. um, as opposed to me, that's like, I'll drop only if I'm like crying in the corner, um, which happens a lot. But <laughs> so he had DNF and, and come out to uh, pace and he had fresh legs. He had an awesome attitude. He was just, you know, keeping us on time. And like, okay, you guys have five minutes to sit here, but after that, we're moving, we're going, keep moving forward. And so uh, I'd say the last 40 miles of the race, he he kept us right on track where we needed to be. And uh, yeah, having a pacer that last 40 miles was a game changer. You know, I don't mm. know, I would have been stumbling around in the dark, hallucinating probably without someone that had, a, you know, the clarity to help guide us on the right speed and path, you know. Brilliant. Yeah, it was a warm day as well. I think that it was I think it was pretty exposed out on that road going down or going to Porcupine. I think that was a yeah. pretty hot day. Were you kind of feeling it, it at that point? Yeah, it was pretty hot. Um, it was hot and kind of dusty. You know, I sort of developed a cough over the race just from breathing in all the all the dust. And so, yeah, definitely coughing a bunch and the heat and the dust and 
I hadn't planned my clothing very well in the drop bag. So I was wearing like all dark colors, which didn't turn out great. And, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was really nice to get to that, that porcupine rim aid station and know that there was just 20 miles left. And that last 20 miles, though, is brutal. You know, you're, yeah, maybe the last 10 miles is, is even more brutal because you're kind of coming down these cliffs and it's dark and you're very sleep deprived. And, uh, you know, it's probably pretty dangerous, I would say as far as the exposure Mm. and like, you know, you could, you could very easily hurt yourself or, or die coming down that last section, uh, before you hit the road. But yeah, it it turned out really well. I mean, I, I went into it thinking I don't need a crew or pacers. I can do this all on my own. And I, it's very possible I could have, but, um, teaming up with some other runners and kind of, you know, getting the benefits of their amazing crew and pacers was definitely a a godsend for me so and i I think that for me anyway that's part of the ultra community you know that's why i like to do these things because that i mean that's i mean that's happened to me and and others as well and and i think you know just the um the willingness of of other people's crews to to go outside of their runner when when they're able and to help out whomever and whenever that's just fantastic and and that doesn't happen i don't think in in other sports there's no crewing in marathons and it's just the the whole community is out there to help everybody get to the end and i really love that about this it's uh, aside from maybe the top couple of percent who are out there actually racing the thing most Mm -hmm. of us are just out there trying to get to the finish and I just love the fact that you can rely on other races or other people's paces or you know whomever crew from wherever. I, I think that's brilliant and totally unique in 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 this sport. Oh, for sure, it's it's very much an individual sport. If you're maybe you know if you're a mortal like I am, uh, it's it becomes more of a team sport. Uh, th- these longer races, you know, I always tend to meet people, and you sort of. It's like a team sport where you form your team as you go, um, which is really cool. And, you know, you you create friendships and learn from other people along the way. And, uh, you know, yeah, maybe these uh, very hardcore people that are winning these races or, you know, getting on the podium, they're they're way more dialed in than I am and maybe can dedicate more of their life to it than I can. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty amazing the selflessness and and you know contributions from other crews and other runners too you know it's 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 pretty cool i I, the big takeaway for me from this race was that felt like everyone wanted me to succeed there was crew and pacers and volunteers that just they're out there you know donating their time you know so that i can have this amazing experience and it's it's pretty cool definitely makes me want to go out and volunteer at one of these races and kind of give back well we'll we'll get into future casey here here in a minute oh, yeah. but i do i do want to go back <laughs> i wanted to go back real quick to a comment you made which i think is a sort of a really experienced comment about your exit from the geyser pass aid station because a lot of people would sit in the aid station and worry about how much time they've got left and then be look watch you know looking at your watch and i gotta go yeah. and go but I think it's a really smart move on your part and just generally speaking, a very experienced move to get into the aid station, get what you need and leave and then sit down and figure out, okay, what am I going to do having already left? So I can't get timed out. 
It's it's those yeah. little things I think that you learn over time. But I I love that move. I think it's a super smart move, and a great tip for anybody anybody listening. I think that's a wonderful wonderful little tidbit right there. Yeah, that's that's the dangerous place to be is in the aid station. Um, first of all, you're comfortable. They're going to bring you what you want. The volunteers are going to bring you delicious food and drinks to your heart's content. You know, you got your shoes off, so your feet are feeling good. You're sitting down on a comfortable chair. Those yeah. are all very dangerous things if your goal is to keep <laughs> moving forward, right? Yes, for sure, for sure. And they're not going to kick you out. They're not, they're unlikely uh, potentially. Most of them to say, "Oh, you, you, you need to leave." Talk yeah. you out of it, but yeah. Like, hey, um, just but that's also you. where you DNF. You don't DNF on the side of the road or the side of the trail. You know what I mean? There's yeah. There's hope when you're outside of the aid station, but when you're in an aid station, that's where you're going to get a ride back to your hotel or whatever, you know, and that's dangerous. If you want to finish one of these things, um, comfort is right. Uh, I yes. find that I, I love a good sitting rock or a good sitting tree that's tipped over or whatever. You know, if I find a nice chair shaped rock out there, I'm usually very drawn to it and we'll sit down on it. And it's like, man, this sitting feels amazing but once i start to feel comfortable that's when it's time to remind myself that like you gotta move yeah we still got a race to get through here yeah yeah, the clock is ticking for sure yeah i mean getting in and out of the aid stations is always a struggle for me um i think if i could work to get better at that i'd probably finish one of these things a lot faster but yeah i yeah, if I'd stayed in that aid station. Uh. I am curious too, Casey. You talk about could maybe finish one or two of these. So I, you know, when you go stalk the ultra sign up, as most of us do uh, for for each other. So you've done a lot of fifty k and fifty milers, and then this total polar opposite of two hundred and forty <laughs> miles. Like, the, there's. Are you thinking about an in between at any point, or are you just gonna do the fifties and throw in these two forties? Well, my next race is a, a fifty miler in February. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, what I like about a 50 K or 50 miler is I'm confident in it. Um, Mm. you know, I think a lot of these races you go into them and if there's, you know, it's, it's a a little more, I don't know. I don't want to say more fun because it's not, it's a different experience when you're confident you Mm. can finish it because then you're more focused on like how fast can I finish it or how well will I feel after finishing this race? Um, yeah, the the fear of not finishing has is not there as much. Now, there are some yeah. 50Ks and 50 miles, but yeah, generally speaking. For sure, for sure. Um, I have not ever DNF'd a 50K or a 50 miler yet, I'll say. <laughs> um, so so I'm generally confident going into one of those that I can at least finish it. And, and then I can try to more uh, put more focus on like trying to do better or maybe set a better time or maybe have a better time. With the, the bigger distance, the 200 milers, based on my track record, there's a very good chance I will fail. There's a very real possibility of failure, and I'm doing something that's really outside of my comfort zone. And I love that, too. It's a completely different kind of challenge. Um, yeah. I, I really like running half marathons as well on the road, gasp. Um, Ah. but like running a half marathon, you know, you get a medal at the end, which is kind of cool, I guess. And I can go run a half marathon. They start super early in the morning. Usually I can be home having run a race, feeling good about doing something and, you know, get on with the day, getting out of bed, having breakfast and 
they're not like, where have you been for five days? Dad? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a little bit of that for me too. Like when you go and do these big races, it, it takes a lot of planning and time away. And, you know, there's people behind the scenes then that have to fill in when you're not there for literally five days in, in some of these cases. So, yeah. Yeah. My wife had to be a single mother for five days while I was out in Moab having a great experience, you know? And so that's, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, you talk about the sacrifice of crews and pacers and all these things. Um, yeah. My wife, got to stare at a dot on a map moving at two miles an hour for five days worrying you know in yeah. the middle of the night <laughs> thank god oh, it hasn't moved um, what's going on? yeah I, i'm familiar i do like the half marathons though they're just long enough to still be somewhat challenging uh mm-hmm. in mileage and time but not long enough to really like batter you where you to where you know yeah. marathons and beyond you're like i i need i need some time to recover here so I don't know. It depends on how, I mean, yeah, I think that I did a half marathon this spring and I set a personal record. Um, Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like an hour and 25 minutes or something. So incredibly fast. That's pretty quick. That's really quick. It was all downhill, but yeah, it was quick. And then I couldn't walk up or down my stairs for three or four (laughs) days afterward, you know? Yeah. And if you contrast that with the Moab 240 after that race, I was walking around just fine, which is weird, right? Yeah. So let's get, so <laughs> talking of recovery. So what is your recovery? Do you, do you have a strategy for recovery or is it just like, do you go spa day or I don't know what, what does your recovery look like after uh, one of these you know, big races? I like, I like a good bath or a good cold shower. Um, I try to keep moving, but like slower, mm. like active recovery type stuff. I, I think oh, right. I was out going for a walk the next day uh, for a couple miles and took my, you know, two-year-old on a little hike to go look for fall leaves, stuff like that. And I think maybe week and a half, two weeks later, I ran an unofficial marathon here. So oh, that was wow. kind of stupid, but fun. Wow, that's bold. Well, they have this thing called a, a whale-a-thon. There's a big whale statue in the middle of a roundabout. Uh, a whale? Um, downtown. Like a, a whale. Like a, a whale. A blue like, whale. Yeah, a whale. A, okay. Like a life-size blue whale statue, which is out of wow. place for, for Salt well, Lake. That was um, my very next question. Like, what is this blue <laughs> whale statue doing in the middle of Salt Lake? I don't know. Well, yeah. and I mean, I think that the city councilor, whoever put it there, and people were sort of like scratching their heads, like, why is there a giant blue whale statue when we're, you know, a thousand miles from the ocean um but the whale ushered in like one of the best snow seasons we've had and so they just kind of uh, hail the whale as a thing some people started doing a -a whale-a-thon it's in the middle of a roundabout so it's a 0.04 mile loop around the whale and a -a whale-a-thon as you do like 600 and something laps around the whale and so i thought you know i better get on that while i i still i mean you know after you do a 240 mile race the idea of doing 26 miles isn't so daunting you know for a couple weeks you're like oh 26 miles that's like the distance between an aid station kind of extra (laughs) and so so i went out there and did like 638 laps around the whale definitely not my fastest marathon i took my time did it at night so it was a little cooler but yeah i've just tried to get right back into my 40 miles a week after about two weeks of taking it kind of easy I think the biggest issue I've had is uh, just my feet sort of falling apart. You know, I had a few blisters, nothing crazy, but 
it's like my feet have decided to shed a whole layer of skin since the since the race. It's been about a month and a half now. I'm still yeah. still picking dead skin off my feet to my wife's wow. dismay. <laughs> <laughs> Doing it in the living room while you're watching TV or whatever. You know? Oh, she's absolutely like you need to leave and do that somewhere else. <laughs> oh, elsewhere, yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Yeah. I've had those conversations myself. Yes. Uh, <laughs> been the recipient of the of the order to leave um did you have any other niggles throughout the race was the was the feet the major kind of thing for you or was there any other like knees i i know i when i uphills i'm great with i can go uphill all day long but downhill for me is a real challenge it's just i had a lot of rugby growing up as a kid um Mm. and so my knees are just all kinds of shot out of proportion so I have a challenge going downhill with knees. How about you? What what did you feel? Uh, I I tend to have knee trouble on the downhills as well. Um, so I I am a lot more conservative with going mm. downhill. A lot of people are like run the downhills, and I'm like, yeah. oh, I'll try to run the uphill and walk yeah. the downhill. <laughs> um, but yeah. my knees did great. Surprisingly, I had a, a kind of a hip sort of thing going on most of the race. But yeah, I had a hip. I don't know if it's like a, a hip tightness in the muscle or something. I'd gone to a a physical therapist before the Bigfoot race and had him look at it. And they were like, yeah, right. you need to do more stretching. And so I've kind of introduced a little bit more stretching into my recovery and, and uh, race prep. I'm not Ooh. great at sticking with it, but, um, <laughs> but I've at least learned some stretches that help. So I had, I had like a little hip stiffness throughout the race, but I started the race with that and it just kind of got worse as the race went on, of course. Um, but I wouldn't, I mean, surprisingly my body held up better this race than it has many of my other races in the past. So I think a lot of that has to do with just the slower pace that I was going. Um, I mean, I averaged around two miles an hour, so, you know, a casual walk really, and I think slowing down makes a massive difference. A lot of times I'll go out on even a 50 K a little too hot. And then mm. I have trouble with nutrition and I have trouble with, you know, cramps or, uh, you know, knee and hip pain or foot pain. But I started this race pretty okay. slow and kept a slow pace the whole time. And that made a world of difference for all of the things Yeah, for being able to eat cheeseburgers at the end of the race. And, and being able to eat a lot more and drink a lot more without feeling sick and just not beating myself up, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The lesser impact and less sort of, I mean, there's obviously some digestive challenges when you're going 200 miles, it's 200 miles. But yeah, the more you right. can keep yourself eating real food and a lot of it, I think the better your chances are of finishing Absolutely. for sure. Um, yeah. So uh, we, we touched on future Casey. What other races do you have coming up? Is Moab your race now? Like, is this it? Or is there a, a triple Moab coming up? What about it? I think I saw you signed up for a Tahoe this go around or next year. Cocodona, maybe. I don't know. What are your future plans? Well, Cocodona looks amazing. I'd love to try that. Um, so this year I'm going to try to. So I've tried to do the triple crown of 200s uh, several years now since that first year. I've learned a lot of things about getting to the start line being so hard logistically. You know, I have, I have six children. I have a full-time job. I have a lot in my life. And so 
to prioritize the triple crown of 200s is very difficult. The COVID thing put a damper on things, illnesses and family obligations have all put a damper on it. Um, I have many reasons and excuses for why I'm still not completed the the triple crown of 200s, (laughs) but um, it's definitely a big goal of mine. This year, I'm not going to go for it. I'm going to do the Tahoe 200 in June, yeah, which I've never actually started. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to that race. Hmm. Um, and I am going to try to get into the Bear 100 or the Wasatch 100. Right. And, Excellent. You know, I think those 100-mile races are, they're a different kind of challenge than a 200. You have a much tighter cutoff time. You really got to move a little quicker, uh, you know. With, yeah, that, there's yeah. less uh, less room for error, I would say, or less room to recover if you make an error. Where on 200, yeah. you know, five days, right? You but 100, no, you got like 30, probably 34 hours max. Exactly, you can really fast pack Moab 240, you know, and yeah. sleep and hang out in the aid station and eat a cheeseburger and those things. But um, a hundred mile race is a, a lot different, so. I'd like to, you know, finish a hundred miler, which I've never done. <laughs> I'd like to, you know, do this 50 miler I have in the spring. Uh, well, I guess February is the middle of winter, but yeah, you know, I only have like three races on my agenda for the year and that's uh, the red hot 50 miler in Moab, which they've never done a 50 mile version of that race. So I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Uh, going to try to get into the bear, or the Wasatch and the Tahoe 200. So, Maybe the year after that or the following year, I'll be able to go out for the Triple Crown of 200s again or maybe try the Cocodona. I'd like to someday maybe do something like Vol State. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, absolutely. For sure. I mean, they give you 10 days or something, so... I I I love the uh, large ones. There's another race out there called the uh, Fools 409, which is a 400 mile version. Same kind of deal. It's sort of a do it yourself. It's across New York State. Oh, that sounds interesting. Right along the lake, uh, I forget the lake. Is it Ontario? Whichever lake that is yeah. at the top of New York State, and then it goes into the Adirondacks and over the Adirondacks oh, and amazing. finishes on the border with Vermont. But yeah, it's the same. It's exactly the same kind of style as as uh, Vol State, this sort of do-it-yourself, you're on your own, it's on a road, going town to town, making your own way. I love those styles of races. Um, I think very different. There's a lot more. There's a lot more uh, big races kind of coming out now. I mean, like there's uh, this Mighty Gallatin race that's sort of a stage race that's really Mm. interesting looking. And I mean, I found this race on Ultra Sign Up. I don't know how real it is even but it's like salt to sulfur it's like a 420 mile race from salt lake to west yellowstone or something like that or wow but but it's like 40 dollars to register and they're like what do you get nothing (laughs) you know it's like (laughs) self-supported yes that sounds kind of cool but yes i mean i like the idea of the, the longer distances ultimately i'm I'm in it for the experience and and kind of proving to myself that some regular dude that wasn't ever super athletic can still do <laughs> crazy stuff and have a great experience and learn and grow and yeah. yeah I love it and and you know that's 
that's definitely why I'm into it. I know there's a whole bunch of other folks thinking the exact same way. It's all about the journey and, and growth and the challenge. I mean, for me, I think we, we live in a world where everything is about convenience. How convenient is it that I can order food off an app on my phone and somebody comes and delivers it to the house? You know, and that's, that's wild. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's great, but I don't know that you learn anything about yourself like that. Where is exactly. the challenge of life? And that's, so that's, I, I'm with you. I think signing up for these big ones is more of a growth opportunity and something to challenge. And I love the idea that you may not finish this. I mean, it's mm -hmm. definitely not a guarantee that you'll even finish. Never mind, you know, <laughs> post a good time or anything. It's just like, you know, there's a very real chance you won't finish this race. And so I, I love the, I love that challenge. And, you know, that's, that's kind of why I do these things and, and uh, you know, yeah. help others do these things too. Um, it's really cool. So, yeah, so um, I appreciate you being with us today, uh, Casey. As we wrap up, uh, pretty awesome conversation. Definitely want to want to take a minute to say thanks for joining us. You know, your journey through not one but two Moab two forty races, pretty inspirational, and obviously your passion for ultra running shines through. Before we sign off, do you do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom you would share with anybody listening? who might be considering stepping into the world of ultra running? Uh, yeah, I think I kind of have this philosophy that anybody who is capable of, you know, walking up or down a flight of stairs or moving their body can do way bigger things than they think. Um, don't let, you know, fear of failure hold you back and, you should definitely aim for things that seem out of your reach because they're probably more within your reach than you realize. So Brilliant. Well, thank you again, Casey. Really appreciate the time. To anybody listening, thanks for tuning in. I hope today's episode has inspired you, whether you're a seasoned runner, a beginner, or just somebody fascinated by the capabilities of the human mind and spirit. Definitely remember, as, as Casey alluded to, it's about setting your own pace and embracing the journey, not really about the distance, although it is awesome to finish a 240-mile race uh, and brag about it down the pub, you know? Um, so don't forget to follow the podcast for more inspiring stories and conversations. You can find us on social media. We're also out there at choosetoendure.com. So be sure to head over there if you have a moment. Once again, Casey, thanks. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Huge congrats on the on the just amazing achievement at Moab 240. And I know I, for one, will be eagerly watching when you next put your running shoes on. I'll be the dot watcher uh, seeing where you're going. <laughs> so for now, this is Richard Gleave and Casey Sanders signing off. Until next time, remember to run long, run strong, and keep choosing to endure. Thanks for running with us at the Choose to Endure podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. We had a blast. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. Keep racking up the miles and the stories, and we'll catch you at the next trailhead. Until then, remember to run long, run strong.